All right, here, here we go. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for everyone here. God, I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would be able to engage with what you have today, God. Hide me behind the cross so that we can hear you, see you, and respond to you. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message is Owning Heaven's Treasure. Point one is The Hidden Kingdom. So it's stunning to me that the genre of parable, why does God speak in parables? Why did Jesus use all these parables? The parable itself, the genre he uses, communicates how the kingdom of God is coming in. The, a parable hides its truth. It has to be discovered. They all think the kingdom is going to come outwardly, that, that Rome is going to be toppled, the Messiah is going to set up his kingdom, and everybody's going to know it, and the glory of God's going to be everywhere. And Jesus says, no, that's not how the kingdom is coming right now. And so the first parable we looked at was that the kingdom right now is coming, and it's hidden in a seed. A seed hides what's inside of it. it you, you put it in, it starts small, and, and oh my, all of this was hidden in a seed. The second parable, which we did last week, is the kingdom of God is hidden in a world where evil is still growing. Of course the kingdom of God is going to destroy all of you. Uh-uh, uh-uh, it's hidden. It is here. But evil is still growing. And don't be put off that there's evil still here and that it's growing because the kingdom is here. It's hidden. And this week, the kingdom of God is hidden in that which seems very normal. And unless you get eyes to see, you're going to miss it. So the story is one that everyone in that day would know what he was talking about. Today, this is a little foreign to us, so it needs to be kind of explained of what the culture was. In that day, there were, there were no banks. There were no for, ba formal banks like we think of banks today. If you had a treasure, you usually hid it in the backyard. <laughs> and, uh, but because of the nature of things, disease was rampant and war was rampant, oftentimes people would die without being able to tell anybody where the treasure was. And so you could know that there are rich people, but, but and there's probably treasure somewhere in that yard, but they buried treasure. So, but it's interesting because the custom of the day, whatever was in the field belonged to the field. Once somebody dug it up, it belonged to whoever owned that field. <laughs> but if you, if, if, if you reburied it, it would still belong to the field. And so somebody could go out and buy that field. And so here's the story. So this guy is walking along. He's probably walked this way a hundred times before. Seen that field a hundred times before. 
Other people have walked past this field and seen this field, and they had no idea what was in this field, but apparently there had been maybe a big rainstorm and erosion had exposed part of the treasure. So this guy is going along, and he's not looking for it. He's just, he's just in life, and he's walking along, and that, what is that? Let me check that out. So he gets a little closer, and oh, my, I heard these people were rich. I, so there's been rumors about, oh, my, this thing is loaded. And so he, 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 he digs it up, he looks at it, and he's like, uh-oh, it's got to stay part of the field for this to be legal. Otherwise, I'm a thief. If I just take the treasure, I'm a thief. But if I bury it and buy the field, it's all legal. So he, so, so he buries it. This time, you can't see a little corner anymore. <laughs> he makes sure no one can have the experience that he just had. So he, and then he goes, he goes to the owner of the field, and, he, and, and we can imagine that he's like, hey, what do you want for this field? And the owner's saying, it's not for sale. He says, you don't understand. Name your price. So the owner would just like give some inordinate high price. He's like, okay, I'd sell it for this. He goes, deal. <laughs> Owner's like, are you insane? But he's, he goes for joy because he knows, oh my, I'm a multi-billionaire. And he goes, he sells everything. He sells everything else he has because of the treasure that's in that field. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So back when I was in Montevideo, Minnesota, this is probably late 90s, early 2000s, somewhere in there. I, if I went in my journals, I could give you the exact day. But it was Easter Saturday. So the next day is Easter Sunday. And I have a dream. There are three scenes to the dream. Here's scene number one. I am in this Sunday school classroom, and it, it, we're just having Sunday school, and, and, and the kids are building a craft, and there's a few crafts on the thing, and all of a sudden, I know that there is a jewel beyond price in one of these crafts. It's hidden in the craft, and so I know which one it is. I don't know how I know it, but I take it, and I, I, I want to see the jewel, and so I go into the bathroom, but that's not secret enough. So I go into a stall in the bathroom and I open up the craft and there it is. End of scene one. Scene two, I have the jewel, but a friend wanted to hold it. And so I am watching my friend. He's, he's got the jewel in his pocket and he's walking and, and, I, and all I can think about is the jewel is currently not safe. He has no idea what he has there, and the way he is walking, it, it's putting the jewel at risk. And, and so I need to get it back. I need to get it back soon. End of scene two. Here's scene three. I have this jewel back in my pocket, and I'm standing outside of our home. I can see our home. I can see the garage. I can see our car. And I'm just smiling because I'm like, all of this can burn, and I'm still a multi-millionaire because I got this one jewel, and I'm just excited about how wealthy I am, and it doesn't matter anything else I have because I have this jewel, and I wake up. So there are three things that are important about this parable. 
One is seeing the treasure. Two is protecting the treasure. And thirdly, owning the treasure. So here's point two, our need to see. Guys, there is no joy in that there is a rumor that there is a treasure in that field. There is no joy because uh, somebody did a study on treasures and this treasure would be amazing and if it's there, it would be great and da-da-da-da-da and here's what it would be worth and da-da-da-da. There's no joy in that. The joy comes when you look at it with your own eyes, when, when you experience the treasure yourself. But Jesus said it's, it's, it's come hidden. So when Jesus was on earth, the treasure of who he is was hidden by a human, a human body. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, he had nothing outwardly that drew us to him. There was nothing that said Messiah. There was nothing that said that guy, he's the one. He looked like an ordinary human being. The treasure of who he was was veiled by his humanity. And so in Matthew 16, and, and, and his ministry is causing quite a stir, and he's got his, his disciples, and they're saying, he says, who do people say that I am? And they're saying he's the, a prophet, John the Baptist, he's this person, he's that person. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And here's what Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here's what Jesus says to him, Peter, you are blessed. You didn't figure this out. This has been revealed to you. The Father has revealed. The truth you see has been revealed by the Father. This isn't because you're smart or studious. This is because you're blessed. The Father has shown you who I am. Now that's not the only time he gets to see. He gets to see more just a few chapters later. It's actually the next chapter. He takes, Jesus takes James, John, and Peter to a mountain. And before their eyes, Jesus, they see the glory of Jesus. His, his robes change and he is shining in his glory. And, and, and there's a cloud over him. And, and, the, and the voice says, this is my son, listen to him. And Peter is so changed by this encounter that, you know, 30, 40 years later in 2 Peter, he says, Guys, we're not telling you fictional tales or fables that people made up. We're eyewitnesses. We saw his majesty on the mountain. We heard the majestic voice that he is alive. He is who he said he was. This is what causes us for joy to sell everything, seeing him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are now with unveiled faces, Jesus' blood has taken away the veil. And now we can come, not because of our good behavior, but because of Jesus' sacrifice. And we can get a glimpse of him. As in mirrors, their mirrors were made of brass. So it's a very dim image. While we're down here, we get a little glimpse here and there. But even a glimpse changes us from one glory to another glory. This encountering Jesus and who he is. We need to see the treasure. So here's the problem right now. It's 
the treasure is still veiled in human flesh. Right now, the treasure, the field right now is the church. And Jesus is hidden in the field. <laughs> and people come to church and they're like, that wasn't so great. That was, I, all I could see was broken humanity. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, I've been to church. It didn't work. Well, did you see the treasure while you were there? Because God's hidden a treasure in church. He's hidden a treasure in these earthen vessels. And just because somebody's been in the field doesn't mean they've seen the treasure. And a lot of times what happens is, is people, they do see, they get a glimpse of the treasure and they pray the prayer and they accept Christ and then time goes past and, and oftentimes um, they don't see anymore and so they start to doubt what they, what they saw. The treasure in a field is Jesus encountering him, experiencing him in his glory. But you have to see it. And I've noticed that there is a danger that keeps Christians from seeing more. And the danger happens in your salvation experience. We can easily make an idol of where we got saved, who we got saved through, or how we got saved and camp there and think that is the treasure. And it's not the treasure. It's just, it's just a way to the treasure. So where you got saved. Okay, well, we got saved at City Church. And therefore, City Church is the treasure. Everybody needs to come to City Church. City Church is where it's have. Just come to City Church. And, and guys, I, I love it if you honor the church and invite people to the church. But I got news for you. City Church isn't the treasure. It's, it's, it's only a field. It's, it's one of the fields. <laughs> we want people to experience the real treasure. We, we pray this all the time when we're praying in my office, that when people leave, they won't be saying, what a great church or what a great pastor or what great worship, that they will be saying, oh my, Jesus is alive. <laughs> were our hearts not burning in us? Oh my. You can be very limited if... It's, the answer is who you got saved through. That you've got, you got saved through that preacher or that prophet or that, that ministry and everybody, that's the best one. That's the only one because da, 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 you are limiting yourself and you're making an idol of people. It's not pa Apollos or Paul or Peter. It's Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. So honor speakers, honor pastors, honor ministries, awesome. That's really important, but don't make idols of them. It will, it will keep you back. And then the third one is where you encounter the treasure. Your experience. Well, I was, I was slain in the spirit. Everybody has to be slain in the spirit because that's how God reveals the treasure. Or I was in Bible study and it was an inductive Bible study. And that's right. And this is the only way to study the Bible. Or I was saved in a church with expositional preaching and everybody has to, and this is how you get saved because I, that's how I experienced it. And thank God you experienced it that way. But don't make an idol out of how you got saved. Sometimes people experience the, the, the presence and the treasure and it just opens up during worship. Brother Tom, I'll tell you how we would experience the glory if we went back to the hymns. Because that's where I experienced the glory was in those hymns. I don't know what these choruses are, but they're certainly not of God. And then other people are like, 
why are we even doing hymns? It's the choruses. It's the new song. That's where you experience the glory. We need, we need to be on the cutting edge. That's where the, guys, it's not about worship. It's not about the style of worship. It's not about what, Jesus is the treasure. Don't, don't make an idol of how Jesus came to you, how Jesus revealed himself. How does he do it? A thousand different ways. And, and, it, and it's personal and it's intimate and he changes it so that we don't make an idol of lesser things. The treasure hidden in a field. It's, it, it, it's Jesus himself, but it is, it is God's unexplainable love for the human race that, that we find in Christ, that we discover in Christ. Christ. Have you ever heard anybody say this? I am spiritual, but not religious. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Here's what I, I know what they're saying. That I have experienced the spirit world, whether it's they experience God or whether they experience a demonic thing, but they experience somewhere other than church. And they, so church, religion, I'm not that, but, I, but something real has happened, whether it was re, demonic or, or of God. So I don't go to church. I'm just spiritual. Well, let me explain the danger of that. The Bible says that there's more than one Jesus. That Paul says that the devil himself appears as an angel of light and just because you say Jesus or somebody says Jesus doesn't mean it's the Jesus that was in scripture that came and lived in history and revealed God in history through the word of God. You can make Jesus to be anybody you want him to be. My Jesus doesn't believe in truth. My Jesus, just whatever I do, he just loves me and he's for me and it doesn't matter. It's not connected to anything else. It's just Jesus. And all of the new age uses Jesus and all of the different spiritual people will talk about Jesus, but it's not connected to the Jesus that's in scripture. God has entrusted to the church to be the pillar of truth, the protector of truth, so that, so that we're staying with this, the real Jesus, and not a Jesus that's in our own image that we made up and we, you may worship him, but he may, not, he may not be this Jesus. God loves people and his love that has been poured out in Christ, he wants, he wants to make real to all of us. If you had a map called spirituality, the X of where the treasure is, is Jesus. That's where you need to dig. Jesus, this is where you will discover God's love for you. So Jesus tells about, he's trying to describe the father's love. And he tells this parable about uh, the prodigal son. And it's, it's stunning when you get into it because you realize that God's love for the human race is not attached to our behavior. That when, when anybody comes back to him, when anybody repents, there is a huge celebration in heaven because he loves us. I don't know why he loves us, but he's crazy about us. Jesus came and died for us. And when we come home, it's just about his love 
and his delight in us. Yesterday, we got home from a funeral that we were at in Minnesota, and uh, we got back late last night, and I knew this was going to be hard to, do, to go late night and then be up early and do two sermons, but we, we had to go to this funeral. And when I say had to, I mean it was our joy to go to this funeral. The, the woman that died, her name is Dawn, and uh, she revealed to me what God's delight feels like. We went to Montevideo. We were pastoring there. We came, we came there in 1996, and Dawn was in our congregation, and she just chose us. I mean, she decided the Flaherty family is going to be my friends. I'm going to be their friend, and, I, and I, they are just my delight. And she communicated this. It's so unfiltered. Like, I remember one time we went to their house for dinner, and she made me take my watch off. And then she had turned all of her clocks back an hour so we'd stay longer. <laughs> Who does that? Who does that? And then, and then we get called to Madison and instead of feeling betrayed and just like, okay, well, you know, the new guy. No, she doesn't stop. She will not stop loving us. And so, so she, would, she would come to help serve for all of the girls' weddings. And she would come, she would make food, she would serve. She came for Alice's parents' 60th wedding anniversary. She, she, I'm coming, I'm gonna help serve. And she would come, and she wouldn't just come. She knew my favorite food was corned beef. Every time Dawn came, she would have a corned beef already with her that just needed to be heated up. And then she would come and serve, and she'd make pancakes first in the morning. She'd play games with me constantly, which... You know that's my love language. Anyway, um, but it, it wasn't what she did that set her apart. It was how she did it. It was always with such, a, there was no way to feel guilt. She was so happy to be with us. When COVID broke out, I mean, when it first broke out, and we didn't know if, I mean, they had us afraid to go outside when COVID first came so it's, it's during that time. Dawn calls. I'm coming to visit. I'm like, this is a bad idea. This is a really bad. But you couldn't talk Dawn out of it. And so seven hours later, she would drive seven hours. There she is. She's got corned beef. She's got steak. And she just wants to hang out with us for the weekend. And we laugh and we cry and we pray and we worship and we play games. And Dawn goes back. It, guys, it was my joy. I was not going to miss this funeral. I, I, I would have flown. I would have paid any. She, it was my joy because Dawn taught me something about God's delight in us. He just chooses us and then he delights in us. It's hard for us as human beings to grasp his love because we're very sure it's connected to behavior. And Jesus says when the, when the prodigal comes home, the prodigal thinks that all the father is thinking about is his bad behavior. And he's getting ready for a speech and he's, he's going to say, make me as a hired man, which means I don't live in the house anymore. You just, my needs are met because I'm working, but I get it that you don't want to see me. And when he comes home, the father runs to him, doesn't mention one thing he did wrong. He's just so excited that he's home. And, the, and then the, the son leaves off the line about make me as one of the hired men because he knows, oh my, my bad behavior doesn't matter. 
He loves me. He delights in me. And so the sinners and tax collectors, Jesus is speaking, your bad behavior doesn't disqualify you. God's crazy about you. You are like the lost coin. A lost coin doesn't lose its value because it's lost. Still valuable, it's just lost right now. And then the other group that's there are the Pharisees. And they are sure that their good behavior entitles them to things and entitles them to God's blessing. And they're represented by the older brother. And the older brother is all angry because he's been good and the prodigal's been bad and my good behavior means I've earned something. And the father's like, no, it's not about your good behavior. It's, it's, a, it's about this relationship. You're my son. You are with me. Everything I have is yours. God wants to reveal his delight in us. See, in God's economy, honestly, bad behavior, wherever the grace of God isn't, there will be bad behavior. And good behavior, no matter how good you think it is, if it's really, truly good, it's because the grace of God did it. So God's not gonna be that impressed with your great behavior. And he's not that disappointed in your bad. He knows he's the missing link. So he's calling us into this relationship of intimacy where we experience his love and his salvation, it's all, it's all been poured out in Christ. That is the treasure that's hidden in this very normal thing called the church. Don't be misled by the Sunday school crafts. How could there possibly be a treasure in this field? There is. Don't be put off by, well, just a bunch of songs on a speech. No, there's more here than that. But I can't show it to you. Jesus has to Jesus said to the church at Revelation, I have eye salve so that you can see. You need to see. Because without seeing, the treasure is at risk. So that's, here, here we are, point three, our need to protect the treasure. So in the parable, the first thing he does, he realizes the incredible value. He's seen the treasure himself. He realizes the value, so he hides it again. He is protecting the treasure. And in my dream, we got this guy. He's got the treasure, but it's vulnerable because he doesn't realize what he has. He's not protecting it properly. I had a good friend I was with. This was last year, I think. We were having breakfast together and chatting, and, and we had a mutual acquaintance, but he knew her way better than I did. And I said, I said, what about her? Where is she spiritually? And here's what he said. And I thought this was amazing. He said, well, she's a Christian, but relationship hasn't clicked with her yet. And I knew exactly what he meant. It, mean, it means she's prayed the prayer. She comes to church. But until this relationship thing connects, where you see God's love for you and God's goodness toward you, and you experience that joy of, oh my, I can't believe this is true. This is true. This is me. God and me, I have this treasure. You're at risk. So look at, look at Matthew 13. This is, this is verse 12. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. And you say, Pastor Tom, this is a contradiction to what you just said. What, why would God, who loves me, who wants me to be saved, who wants me to be with him, if I don't do it just right, or I don't hear just right, or I don't do it the way, take something from me? And here's the answer. He doesn't. Here's what the parables say. 
if you don't properly value the treasure, there are two thieves that will steal from you. The first one, which is in the parable of the sower, is the seeds that are on the side of the road. The birds come and take them before they can even bear any fruit. And he said, the birds represent the devil who will come before people can understand. And he will just say, he, he steals. He lies to us. He puts a question mark where God put a period. He says, did God really say? And God knows the day you eat, you'll be like him. So he's questioning God's character. And he'll say, surely you won't die. And he just lies and tries to get people. He tries to steal the promises and the warnings God would give people just by lying to them. And in the second parable, he says, there's another thief. Turns out in the second parable that the enemy is sowing people And this is anybody in the world that is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that isn't 30, 60, 100-fold Christian. Everybody else is still under the control of darkness. The the, the second seeds are the the children of the evil one who, um, Jesus said, attack the wheat. They, They destroy, they're trying to destroy the wheat. Now, these people that are under the influence of darkness about 0.0001% of them know they're in darkness and have told Satan they want Satan and they want to be used by evil. And I mean, the other 99.99% don't know they're in darkness. They don't know that they're being used by the enemy. And they attack the wheat. Now, how do they attack the wheat? Well, Jesus tells us how in the first parable. He says... Some are like the seeds sown on the rocks. They, they, they come up quickly for joy, their joy. And then a time of persecution comes. These people controlled by darkness unknowingly will persecute Christians, persecute anybody trying to live godly, persecute anybody and, and let them know their disapproval, uh, demote them, abandon them, uh, gossip about them, betray them, and it's people being used to try to get at the seed of the word of God that, that made you a Christian, and, and these quickly fall away. And then the second one is, there, there's another group, they pass that test, but they, they're like the seed sown among thorns, and, and the cares, and the worries, and the pleasures of this life choke out the word. And, and this is those, these are, these are people that are around us, that are in our family, that are friends, that they, they don't love Jesus, they don't serve Jesus, they might go to church, but they're not, they're not Jesus. And their lifestyle, is counter to the treasure. And they are constantly wanting you to do this, 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 this. They're distracted by their life. Now they are distracting you and, and they're plants of the evil one to try to destroy the wheat. This is why, this is Proverbs thirteen twenty. He who walks with a wise man becomes wise and the companion of a fool is destroyed. Now, I love, I love the first part of this because I don't even have to be that smart. I just need to hang around with people that are wise. I become wise just by the people I hang around. But there's a warning in the second part. You don't even have to be the fool. Just hang around fools. We need to be very careful. I've got a little saying I use usually with the teenagers. Choose your friends well, they'll take you to heaven or hell. 
But I mean, there's a tension with Christians because God, Jesus is calling us out of the world and sometimes you gotta, you gotta let go of relationships that are dragging you back and you just gotta let go and you gotta, you gotta really plug into church and plug into your small group and plug into that. And then there is this where Jesus says, okay, you own the treasure, you're in, you've secured it, now I'm sending you back to the world. <laughs> I need you to go make friends with those people. I need you to hang around your family. I need you to go to work. I need you to do this because you are the hope of the world now. And, and so there's this, there's this tension in the body of Christ with relationships, but God wants you to secure the treasure, to recognize the value of what you have so that you protect it. Paul calls, calls Jesus the unfathomable gift of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 7, Paul says this, in the ages to come, we will discover the incomparable riches that God has given us in his kindness in Christ. This, this gift is so big, guys, we will be literally unwrapping the present for all eternity. You, you can't fathom what you have in Christ. So point three, owning the treasure. It's not about earning the treasure. It is about valuing the treasure above all other things. When I'm sitting looking at my home and my car and my garage and, and I'm realizing my net worth is all in this, everything else, Paul said it this way, everything else has become like dung to me. <laughs> everything else has become unimportant without value compared to the value of knowing Christ. When you see the treasure you realize, I need to own this. What is the cost of the treasure? Well, it'll, it'll, you'll have to sell everything. <laughs> you'll have to sell everything else you might put your identity in, and you're going to have to say, this, this is who I am. So we have a, a vision statement on the back, back wall. It's in the foyer. It says this, finding joy in Jesus Christ and sharing it. That is the vision of this church. You say, Pastor Tom, I thought the vision was revival and awakening. Oh, nope, nope. The vision is finding joy in Jesus Christ and sharing it. So let me tell you a little of my story. We're gonna have the worship team come up in just a moment. So I got a dream that was a parable. This is in the fall of 2010. We had just received a word from a prophet about City Church, a mad city and Lake City are going to go together and become City Church. And, and I have this dream, but it's in a parable form. And the, and, the, and the dream goes like this. First scene, I am fighting an enemy who's stolen the tabernacle. And he, he's, got, he's faceless, and I am exhausted. I, I can barely even pick my hands up. And finally, I elbow him in the head, and he's down for, for just, but I know he's only going to be down for a little while. And so I quick grab the tabernacle, and he's got it in this suitcase. And I grab the suitcase that's got the tabernacle in it, and that's the end of scene one. Scene two, I've got the tabernacle set up, and it's, it's, I set it, it's huge, and it's set up on this pallet waiting for a ship to come and pick it up. But there is a problem in scene two. And the problem is this, the ark isn't in the tabernacle. And the ark is where the manifest presence of God rested. It was why the tabernacle was made, because that was where God's manifest glory rested. So this, this is a big problem. And so I'm looking everywhere to find the ark. 
and I'm checking in his backpack and, you know, whatever. And, and I get this idea because I'm, I, the whole time that I'm looking for it, I'm thinking about if he wakes up again, I, I can't fight again. I can't fight anymore. And so I call, I go down, there's a phone by the, the seashore and ask the captain of the ship if we can sail without the ark. And he says, yes, you can sail without the ark. And I hang the phone up and the last thought I have is he, speaking of the enemy, never would have guessed we would sail without the ark. And I wake up. And I was terrified by this dream. I am like, but I didn't know what it meant. So I'm telling our staff, you know, guys, we just made small groups. It's not about small groups. It's about the presence of God. We get back to the presence of God. Da, da, da. And then I thought it was about America. And it's like, God's giving me a message for America. America's trying to sailing without the ark. And, 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 but over the next couple months, some things became very real to me in scripture that God's presence is so valuable to him that he never commands people to pursue it. That he offers Moses to go into the land, but his presence won't go. And Moses said, no, I won't go unless your presence goes with me. He, David says, when he starts his, his kingdom in Israel, he says, let's do this one thing. Let's get the ark back because we didn't seek it in the days of Saul, the previous king. Well, there's no command Saul's ever given to seek for the ark. David just wanted and valued the presence of God. And then in the New Testament, we have the church at Laodicea that has learned how to do church without God's presence. And Jesus is knocking, not commanding, inviting. Did you know that if you can live your life without the presence of God, he'll let you? If you can do church without the presence of God, he'll let you. So this is all real to me. And so I'm, I decide, I'm, ta- I'm going down to the One Thing Conference at the end of 2009 so that last days of the year, and I spent four nights in worship, six to midnight. And I'm, there's, the Holy Spirit was just pouring out that year and all kinds of crazy stuff was happening. I didn't look at any of it. I didn't judge it. I'm just like, I need God's presence. I need God's presence. January 1st, 2010, I wake up and I know what it means. Here's what it means. Has nothing to do with the staff. Has nothing to do with Mad City or America. It's about me. I, I became exhausted by everything that went wrong when we came to Madison and all, what everybody else was doing. And even though I still had the theology of God's presence, I was living without God's presence. And so I, I went on a mission. I said, God, this is, this is the only thing that matters to me. I give you city church. I don't need to do city church. I don't want to do city church. City, Lake City Church had two stepchildren, a daycare and a school. That's a mess. Then you've got... The $4 million of debt, I hate that. I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want, this is all I want is, is the presence of God. And, and here's, here's what God showed me. He said, I want you to pursue City Church out of obedience to me as, as your assignment, as a means. But the, the end is intimacy with me. But this is your assignment. And so I want you to pursue it, even though you don't want it to happen and it probably won't happen. I want you in your obedience to me to embrace this as your assignment. And I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> There's no way I could bring these two churches together, da, da, da. but I can do that little thing, especially if it doesn't even have to happen. So it, wasn't, it was never about city church for me. It was always about intimacy, intimacy with God. So God miraculously brought city church together, brought these two churches together. 2019, he paid off the debt. And then, and right now, he's got us on an assignment that we are to be a catalyst for revival in the church and awakening in this region 
to the things of God. People are like, well, that's what our church is about, revival and awakening. Pastor Tom is about revival and awakening. No, I'm not. It's just an assignment. And I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to be on that assignment, and I lead region-wide prayer meetings, and we're going to do River Rising. It's going to be a region-wide thing, and I'm happy to call you guys to pray and believe God for, but, but that, that's not what I'm about. I'm about intimacy with God. I want to protect his presence. And this is the assignment that he's given me right now, so I'm going to do it. You'll hear a lot about revival and awakening. It's my assignment right now. So what's that got to do with you? Everything. For instance, let's say you like your job. I just like my job. God is so good. I like my job. I like going to work. Listen, if you make your work your dream, your work is only your assignment. It can't be your dream. Because I'll tell you right now, there are some days you're not going to like your work. You're, gonna, you're, you're not going to like your work and you're going to be confused because I, you know, I thought that God sent me here and I thought, no, this was just your assignment. And you experience intimacy when you do that assignment with him. But work can never be your goal. It can't be your end. It can only be a means to intimacy. Here's another one. This is a big one. Family. Family is everything to me. Watch out. The most family can be for you is an assignment. I just love my kids. I just love my kids so much. Okay, what about when you don't like them? We are so in love. What about when you don't like your spouse? I'll tell you right now, your spouse and your family, even though they're beautiful gifts, they're wonderful, the most they can be is an assignment. You've got to find your joy in Jesus. What happens when you don't is this. Instead of bringing joy to your marriage, you're trying to get your marriage to bring you joy and you're trying to get your spouse and there's all this pressure on your spouse. I'm not happy and make me happy. And you're dangerous. And it's worse with your kids. These kids are my life. They are everything. I need, I need them to succeed because if they succeed, I succeed. And if they fail, I fail. And stop it. They're, they're not all that. They're just your assignment. Raise them well and you'll experience the intimacy that God has you. It's a God-given assignment. Love them well. But you can bring joy to your marriage. You can bring joy to your children. Well, what if they don't turn out good? Well, that's up to them and God.